You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Doc G, and today we earn and invest in fighting injustice as a non-person of color with Tanya Hester. Picture the late 1960s, early 1970s, a small town in called Evanston, Illinois. Back then, the school district decided that it wanted to try to integrate the school systems, but it wanted to do it in such a way to redraw the lines so that people of color could walk to the schools from where they lived and still integrate the schools 20 to 30% Black. Now, at this time, there were five or six different elementary schools, and they were able to change the school lines perfectly except for one school. There was one school that no matter how they drew those lines, the numbers didn't come out. So it was decided that people of color would be bused into that one elementary school. And my mom can remember that first day walking my eldest brother to school and watching the school buses pull up and the black kids walk out. Growing up in Evanston, I thought that living in an integrated place was enough. Fast forward into my career as a doctor, I was practicing in that very same city that I grew up in, and I had an African-American patient who I sent for surgery for a gallbladder problem, and he died unexpectedly on the operating table, and it was very sad. And I don't make a habit of going to the funerals of my patients, but I knew his wife well. And the funeral was at a church a half a mile from my house. So I walked over. And as I opened the door to this church, I walked into a room of 500 black people. And I was the only white person there. And as I watched people mourning and joking and celebrating and crying, it became obvious to me that there was this whole community that existed right in front of my face all these years that I had never seen. I knew that people of color lived in my community, but I knew nothing of the richness or the community that existed. And I realized at that time, if I wanted to be a good father and a good neighbor and a good doctor, I need to learn to see the other communities around me, whether that be in my neighborhood or when I got involved in personal finance. And back then, I thought that if I could just widen my lens and see those other people, it would be enough. The truth is, 
over the last few months, I've started to realize something that I always knew, but maybe never had the courage to admit that being silent isn't enough. Sometimes knowledge itself isn't enough. But then that begs the question, how do people like me help? How do we make a difference without hurting? To discuss this question, I have a good friend here, Tanya Hester. Now, Tanya is the writer behind the ever-popular blog, Our Next Life. She is the author of the best-selling book, Work Optional, Retire Early, The Non-Penny-Pinching Way. And she has been someone who's been talking very clearly and courageously about racism, sexism, gender equity, and social justice for years. She's been talking about it before it was the popular thing to do. Tanya, first and foremost, it's really good to see you. I feel like it's been a while. It has been. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see your face. These are such strange times we live in for so many reasons. It's strange because many of us are stuck in our homes trying to do the right thing by helping control this pandemic. But it's a strange time because of the environmental, economic, and social upheaval that we're all going through. I would say go back a few months ago. It would be almost normal, especially for us in the personal finance community, to limit those things we discuss to things like real estate and tax optimization and investing. But we didn't talk a lot about politics or equity, or at least many people thought that we shouldn't. Did we get it wrong? We completely got it wrong. I think for years there has been, and maybe forever, there's been this sometimes unwritten, sometimes very clearly stated rule that we're not supposed to talk about politics. And if you define politics as talking about overtly partisan matters, saying here's who we have to vote for for president or here is a law we have to support it's totally fair to leave those things out of the discussion because that's not always helpful and we're trying to talk to a lot of people who might have very different beliefs and we want to be respectful of that. The problem is that we live in a society now where one side in particular, but sometimes both, are saying don't make it political, don't make it political, while at the same time politicizing just about everything. The fact that if I could go to the store right now, which I can't because I'm immunocompromised and we haven't taken the pandemic seriously enough for people like me to be able to go out, but if I could, I would be wearing a mask. And I know that there would be people who would say to me, because this has happened to friends of mine, hey, stop making such a political statement. Wearing a mask, trying to protect your own life and protect the lives of others has become politicized. Wanting to be able to afford to go to the doctor, having access to healthcare is politicized. Being a woman and saying, I deserve to be paid equally to men has become politicized. So if you're going to call everything political, then you can't also say, don't make it political because you've by definition declared everything part of that sphere. So I think we have to be braver in personal finance and be willing to break that taboo a bit and say, you know, a lot of the stuff we're calling political is just simply indisputable fact. There is a racial wealth gap. There is a racial income gap. There are gaps that exist for essentially every population that isn't 
a heterosexual, cisgendered, white male with no physical or mental disabilities. For everyone else, you're somewhere less lower on the socioeconomic spectrum. And we have to acknowledge that. And doing so is not getting political. It's simply acknowledging reality. And what good are we if we can't speak from a place of reality? Let's talk about reality a little bit. I want to read you a quote I came across on Facebook. And often I see these types of quotes and I don't know how to move forward. So let me read this to you. No white person alive today ever owned a slave. No black person alive today was ever a slave. We can't move forward if people want to keep living in the past. When you hear that, I know that brings out a very specific set of feelings. But besides those feelings it brings out, it makes me feel like maybe there's a little bit of a reality disconnect. Like, how do we even get to the point where we both see a certain reality that we then can talk about? Yeah. You know, I think that that sentiment is unfortunately all too common. And maybe that's true. You know, let's accept no one today has owned a slave in the U.S. in the technical sense of it, owned a person. But we never, as a country, reckoned with slavery. We never made reparations from it. We have seen echoes economically, socially, police violence focused to this day. So we like to talk in this country and we educate children that civil rights issues are things that happened in the past. We got rid of slavery in the 1860s. We fixed civil rights in America 100 years later in the 1960s. We don't talk about it as something that exists to this day. And we're talking on the day when the Supreme Court has just said that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act does, in fact, protect LGBTQ plus people from workplace discrimination. So until this morning, it was legal to discriminate against gay, bisexual, transgender people in quite a few states. Some states had outlawed it, but certainly not all. Talking about civil rights as something in the past is incredibly harmful to the discussion. We have to talk about it as something that still exists now because it simply factually does. And if we can just agree on that, I think talking about it as a civil rights issue, as a human rights issue, and not as like people demanding better treatment. There is a very destructive line of thinking that is articulated often. And I face this a lot in talking about women's issues. I I am a completely uh, white person. (laughs) I do not claim any lack of privilege from my skin color. But, you know, women have a different a set of circumstances than men do in the world. And something that will often be leveled is this argument of, well, you want more rights than me, or that if I get more rights as a woman, you as a man will have fewer rights. And it's this fixed pie fallacy, this idea that my rights somehow impinge on yours, when in fact, everyone having equal rights, it doesn't hurt you at all. And that's the place we need to be coming from is, is not this place of what will my rights cost you, but how do we all actually grow and gain if we all have equal rights? And I've noticed that it's not just that it's fixed amount of the pie, but that people actually get angry and feel like you're somehow impinging on their rights mm-hmm. when you start talking about these things. Yeah. I mean, it's like right now we have such a big divide over the phrase Black Lives Matter and the people who like to respond, all lives matter. Black Lives Matter does not say all lives don't matter. It doesn't say Black Lives Matter more than others. It, It simply says 
we have undervalued black lives relative to others, which is indisputably true on every single measure, whether you look at wealth, you look at educational attainment, you look at advancement in society, the people we look up to. I mean, literally every measure, incarceration, it, it goes on and on. We have not valued black lives equally. And so simply asserting, hey, we want to say that black lives matter as much as everybody else's, that somehow is contentious when it shouldn't be. But we're coming at this with, I think we have to acknowledge there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty out there. The thing that feels different right now, we're talking about civil unrest. No black American has learned anything new recently. George Floyd being killed, Breonna Taylor being killed in her bed at home uh, by police who still are on the job. They're, they're actually on paid vacation right now, uh, but they have not been arrested. They haven't lost their jobs. This is not news to any Black person. I think what feels different is that some white people are waking up and recognizing that, oh, we have work to do. This isn't something where we need to keep making Black Americans fight for every right. It's that we have to deal with this. This is a white supremacy problem that white people need to talk about. When you say this is a white supremacy problem that white people need to talk about, one thing I've noticed by what I believe are well-intentioned content creators or just well-intentioned community members is this need to say, oh, let's invite a person of color over here to talk about this issue. Let's ask them how we can make things better. Is there a problem with that type of thinking? I understand the impulse. And I think the impulse to share the spotlight, to pass the mic, that is really important. We need to bring forward more diverse voices generally. I think if you look at most personal finance podcasts, most blogs that do interviews, you're going to see a lot of white dudes. You just are. And so looking at bringing more people to the table is a really good thing. However, what we're doing that we need to reckon with is we're asking people to do a lot of emotional labor in sharing their traumatic experiences with us when they may or may not feel safe doing so. I mean, if, if we've never shown any interest before in diversity or racial inequality or racial violence. And now suddenly we're saying, hey, tell me all about how racism has shaped your life. I mean, how safe are you going to feel doing that? So there's one, the emotional labor, but there's also the the pay equity issue of this. If you're asking someone to come on, do work, you're not paying them because you're, you know, I'm doing air quotes right now, but giving them uh, visibility. And then you're profiting off that product. That's highly problematic. You know, if you have a podcast and you're saying like, oh, I'm going to have somebody do a guest, you know, a guest hosting for me. I make money off that podcast and I'm not sharing that. We're simply perpetuating more of the same system. This is a system in which we have historically and still to this day underpaid or maybe not paid at all Black Americans, people of color. And we're asking them to do more free work to enrich you and to give your brand a halo effect. That's not okay. We have to do better than that. One of the problems I think many well-intentioned people face is when they see evidence of racism, sexism, social injustice, they're not sure how to address it, whether to condemn and vilify or whether to come together and educate. And I think there's a fine line to draw the difference between maybe explicit racism, someone who clearly means harm, and you mm -hmm. probably are never going to really bring that person very well to the table, and someone who is suffering from implicit racism, sexism, bias. 
do you see those as a major issue in how we address people we see out there in the community acting quote unquote badly? I think there are a lot of things going on there. I think one is we are all terrified of failing in public. And on some level, we just have to get over that. I've said things that I've come to regret later. Some of them I've apologized for. Some of them I've just said, okay, I'm going to learn from this and do better. Everyone does this. We have to be okay with that. I think that people right now are so afraid of saying the wrong thing or saying the right thing a little bit the wrong way that they're just being silent or they're only speaking to their own echo chamber. Right now, I see a lot of people uh, saying, you know, I want to speak up about this, but I don't know how. Hey, people tell me how, which we should not be asking people who have historically been oppressed to do the work for us of educating ourselves. If in this moment, you can't find a million lists on Google of books to read to educate yourself about or movies on Netflix to watch. Netflix literally right now when you log in has a whole screen that's Black Lives Matter. And it's very easy to watch those films and to learn. And so we're expecting others to do the work for us. And then I see a lot also of people doing this tiny little half step of saying, hey, I want to talk about racism. And then seeing a lot of other white folks jump in and congratulate them. And you have this echo chamber of everyone saying, oh, hey, good job. How brave of you to bring it up. When you've in fact changed very little, you've learned very little. I think we have to go outside that and and try harder. I think another piece that's really helpful in this moment is to think about this as anti-racism. I did not coin this. I cannot claim any ownership of this, but I think it's a really compelling idea that, as far as I know, was coined by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote a wonderful book that everyone should read called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And in it, he talks about the fact that we are all racist. We all have implicit racism. It is pretty unavoidable as humans who are social creatures and learn a lot of things and are are influenced in all kinds of ways we don't recognize. We're never going to push that stuff out entirely, but what we have to do is learn to recognize it. And in those moments when we recognize it in ourselves and in others, we have to push back against it and commit ourselves to not this short period of saying Black Lives Matter, but to the lifelong work of being anti-racist. And something that that does, which I think is really helpful in this discussion, is it shifts the blame. So instead of saying, like, we're going to go out and we're going to label who are all the racist people, we're not going to do that. This isn't about blaming. This is about saying, why is it that we live in a society in which racist statements happen, in which racist beliefs exist? And how can we fight to make this a better society where that stuff doesn't happen, or if it does, we can address it and we all feel brave enough to jump in and say something instead of just letting it go and saying, oh, I don't want to rock the boat. I'm not going to call this out uh, because we have to. We have to commit to this. I hope this moment really shows that to everyone. This is not just some little trend. This is something that we have to do forever. Your response makes me think of two things. The first part of it, uh, quote, or I should say paraphrasing Angela Rosman, who was on Stacking Benjamins recently, And she mentioned this idea that instead of going to a person of color and asking them what they're going through, that sometimes it's appropriate to Google it and find those people who are already putting in the emotional work, as opposed to bringing that emotional work to someone who might not be at that place who's ready to talk to you about such things. So the first part of what you said really connected me to that idea. The second part I'm wondering, there are a lot of content creators like me out there who see other content creators put their foot in their mouth, right? They say something, Mm -hmm. you're like, ooh, that was dumb. 
And then you see them pay a price for it. You see them pay a price socially. You see them pay a price with their businesses. I don't have to give specific names. We've seen this before in our community. Me personally, I've decided that the cost of not trying to speak about these things is greater. But there are a lot of people out there who are just afraid, especially if they are part of the supermajority, the white males of the world. They're afraid to communicate or to get to those more difficult topics. Is there a real fear that you could lose your following your business, your connection to your community by saying the wrong thing? I think the fear is real. I don't think, though, that it's right. The, the phrase, uh, it's not the crime, the cover-up, comes to mind because I think that's really what it is. If someone says something and it's wrong and people correct them and they say, oh my gosh, I never thought about it that way. I have some learning to do. I'm going to go do some self-reflection. I honestly think they wouldn't pay a price in most cases. What causes people to get that backlash is when they hear some critique, they hear someone say, have you thought about it this way? And they double down. And that's a very knee-jerk reaction. We get defensive easily. Someone comes at us and says, you're wrong. We tend to say, "Mm, no, I'm going to tighten up and tell you why I'm right. If we would be more open to that feedback, I honestly think people would feel much less fearful, you know, if, and, and this has happened with me. So uh, this is a very minor example, but my last uh, post on the blog was about what the personal finance community needs to do to stop upholding systemic racism. And I wrote a few things in there that I was corrected on. So one was I referred to black Americans pre civil war as slaves uh, in slave states. And someone wrote me a very thoughtful note and said, you know, actually we need to refer to them as an enslaved people. And this is an important difference. And here's some literature to read, to learn why I could have said, whatever, like words, whatever, you know, semantics, but I went and did that reading and I wrote back to them and said, thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. I will do better. I have learned something. I appreciate that. I'm going to change it. Uh, Similarly, I used the phrase tone deaf. Someone wrote to me and said, that's an ableist term, which I have a disability. I was ashamed that I didn't recognize that. I could have said, oh, but I have a disability. You don't get to tell me what is ableist and what isn't. But I said, oh, wow, I didn't think about that. Thank you for raising that. Let's change it. I mean, it's, it's a, I don't mean to pat myself on the back right now. I'm just trying to give very specific recent examples. But I think if we could change our mindset to be open to growth like that and to be open to the fact that we're going to fail publicly sometimes and we can acknowledge that and not be canceled, I think we'd have a very different conversation. And so for folks who are afraid of speaking up, signal your willingness to your audience to be corrected, to learn, to do better. Not that we're expecting people to do the work for us, but if we're trying and we're educating and we're speaking and we say something wrong, we need to be open to growing from that. And I think that makes all the difference. It's, it's rarely the first thing that someone says that's the problem. It's the doubling down. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. From my own experience, we had an episode of the What's Up Next podcast. Now we're obviously an invest, but when we were What's Up Next, where we had a content producer on who a large part of our community felt shouldn't have a platform. I and, wonder who that was. <laughs> yeah, and it was a it, there was a very contentious conversation, and I was on. I was on vacation at the time and, you know, responding on Facebook because people cared enough to comment. 
And most of my responses, I had to really check myself with each response about where I'm coming from when I'm making this response and how to show my intentions of what I really wanted to do or not do. And I ultimately decided not to publish that episode because my community spoke. And my decision is, if this is what my community is telling me, then I better listen and learn and grow from this. But it was a hard lesson. I don't feel like I lost any followership, so to speak. I certainly got a bad review here or there. Uh, But I can look back and say I grew from the experience. But going through it, I was sweating a little bit. Sure. Yeah, no, and I think anytime we speak up against the status quo, it's always going to feel hard. And I think getting used to that discomfort is important. I I think also, you know, hearing you talk about that, I applaud your decision, but I also am reminded of the quote, which at this moment, I wish I could remember who said this. It may have been Rachel Cargill, who's amazing, but but I'm not sure. Uh, But someone said, that this cannot be an exercise in self-improvement for white people. This is ultimately about fighting for black lives. And I think we, we would agree also Hispanic, Latino lives, disabled lives, Native American, indigenous lives. I mean, it's, this is about trying to recognize the role that viewing white people as the people in charge, the people who should have the opportunities, what that has meant for so many in our society. But if we view this as, I'm going to try to earn gold stars for saying the right things, or I'm going to try to be seen as one of the good white people. I'm putting good in air quotes that that ultimately distracts from the entire point. And so one of the things that I hope we'll all strive for, and this, I say this to someone who loves gold stars more than anything. I love being told (laughs) that I'm doing a good job. I love being told that I'm courageous and speaking out, but this isn't about me. This, this is not about me. It's simply not. It's not about you. It's not about any of the white folks listening. It is about how have we been complicit or silently complicit. They are the same thing in a system that has harmed others, whether we noticed it or not. And now we're starting to notice it. How can we fight back against that? Even if there's no personal glory, even if no one's going to say, hey, good job. Um, This is something that is our responsibility to take on. I think in personal finance in particular, that includes being very thoughtful about who we're giving platforms to. And I know in that example of the story you just shared, that was someone with quite extreme views. But I think we need to move that bar even farther because just like I started out talking about with politics, we have got to start recognizing that those who insist that money's not political or who insist that we not make things political, don't go there, don't go making this political. I mean, literally every time on my blog that I mentioned the Affordable Care Act, I get tons of comments from people saying, stop making it political. It's like, this is just the law. I'm talking about how you get health insurance. This is not a political statement, even though I agree with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, But that viewpoint of don't make it political is an argument for the status quo. And the status quo is unjust. And so we've got to be very careful about giving platforms to those folks too. It's not saying everyone has to agree politically, but we have to acknowledge that money is political that money has impacts on people, um, particularly people of color and women, people with disabilities, immigrants. So that's just simply reality. And, And why would we give platforms to people who don't even acknowledge reality? This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel 
This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up to date first party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Yeah, I like that statement. The status quo is unjust. And again, there's those basic reality points that if you can't agree on, it becomes hard to have a conversation. And I think that's definitely one of them. You mentioned the gold star phenomena, and I've heard this term virtue signaling coming up, and I had never heard that term before. So, kind of, Oh, try being a woman on the internet. Yeah. You'll hear it all the time. <laughs> it snuck up on me, I have to say. And so what, you know, how do we separate being someone who's not in it for themselves and saying and doing the right things versus someone who's virtue signaling? Like, where is that line drawn? Yeah. So the idea of virtue signaling is that you are just saying something to show that you are woke, air quotes again, or because um, woke is a an appropriated term from the African-American community. We should all acknowledge that. We shouldn't use it casually. Um, but to show that you're a good person or you're you know socially progressive or something like that, that's the idea of virtue signaling. However, it's generally used in a way to silence people and to avoid engaging with your argument in a substantive way. So if you have ever said to someone, oh, that's virtue signaling. First, asserting that something is virtue signaling is itself virtue Virtue signaling. signaling, So you need to consider that, but consider whether, why don't you instead engage with the argument substantively? So whenever people now accuse me of that, I just have a tweet that I copy and paste uh, where I've addressed this in the past. But what you're getting at, I think, is the idea of performative allyship or performative, you know, action where you're doing something just to put on the performance of activism rather than actually engaging in it. I think the term performative is even becoming a bit of a silencing technique, but that aside, 
I do think it's really important to look at what is your motivation? Are you saying this because you want the sheen of being a person who is socially involved or are you doing it because you care and you actually want things to change? If it's the former, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you have a lot of growing to do. And if you commit to that, you can go from being someone who is performing social justice or performing equality to someone who's actually fighting to dismantle racism and systemic inequality. So don't view it as it's a bad necessarily, but just as it's the first step and you need to grow way past it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of this idea of intention because mm-hmm. it's so easy to get it wrong, either in your own actions or interpreting other people's reactions and interactions. It's really trying to figure out what your intentions are. And if your intentions are truly to move the ball forward, help people make this a more just society, or is it, as you were saying, to get those gold stars and to have people look upon you favorably? And sometimes it's not always easy to tell, even personally. I mean, just like you said, I, I like being recognized for doing things right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question I, is, is that my main intention? Yeah, I think we all do. and. Honestly, even if someone starts from a place of, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we saw people posting the black square on social media, on Instagram, especially, but to, to some extent on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and that was meant to show solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And a lot of those folks had never said anything about racial inequality or racial violence, police violence, any of it. They posted the black square and then they went back to talking about whatever. Hey, here's what my kid did in the yard today. Honestly, you know, those feel shallow, but it still made a big impact and it still showed a lot of people of look how much solidarity there is. Some of it was more sincere solidarity than others, but maybe some of those black squares that were posted out of insincerity still helped to win others over and show the scale of the support. So I think it's more complicated than just saying some people are in it for the right reasons and some people are in it for the wrong reasons. I think it's much more helpful to say, how can we all keep growing on this continuum of going from a place of maybe you just post a black square and say nothing else to becoming very outspoken about this and talking at work. I mean, these are the things we really have to do. We have to be willing to fight for equality in the workplace so that we aren't paying Black employees less, so that we aren't hiring them less, so that we aren't hiring LGBT employees less frequently and Latino and uh, Indigenous employees less frequently. So this is a, a big fight. And if you are just posting the Black Square and then going back to your job where Black women earn 65 cents on the dollar to a white male, which is the national average, that's not okay. It's, it's what do you actually then do with this other than just the public statement. But look at it as room to grow, not as who do we condemn or not. I think calling people out for that is less helpful than remembering what the fight really is. I will tell you that if I, when I do see the Black Square or the Black Lives Matter moniker on someone who I believe is not involved at all, it does give me that pause and say, wow, that person was pushed enough to start taking at least some action. And it has surprised me a little bit that I've seen some people who I just didn't feel were involved in those kind of conversations putting a stake in the ground and at least saying, I'm willing to go this far and say, no, this is not all right. Yeah, and and that is progress. That is something. What we need to be careful not to do is to be overly congratulatory for that. We can't say, oh, hey, good job. Way to take a stand when they've done one little thing. I mean, that's good. We should keep encouraging that. But any congratulations we give, gold stars we give, that suggests that the fight is over. And it's not. 
everybody has to step up and do a lot more. We need to have these conversations with friends, family. If you create content, you know, on your platform, this has to be something we commit to over the long term and not something where we go, oh, I posted a black square. Good job, me. Let's move on. Let's talk about that a little bit. I'd like to spend some time talking about how people like me, in a sense, who think deeply about these things, but didn't always feel pushed to make at least public actions, right? So I, I always felt like in my own life, I was trying to create as much equity and fairness and collegiality and trying to be what I thought was a good person. But as I kind of said in my intro, I always kept on telling me, okay, it's enough. You know, you're, you're not feeling these horrible, hateful feelings. So that's enough. You live in a place where black people and white people and Latino people and LGBTQ people and transgender people and, you know, where you have all sorts of different kinds of people to this point where I realized that, you know, maybe I wasn't being as courageous as I should have been in the past. How do we start? Like, are there simple things that the non-courageous person can start with to dip their toe in the water and to start making positive movement forward? I think there are several things we can do. One, in terms of mindset, I think that a central issue that we have in the U.S., and this is all, everything I'm saying is true in Canada, by the way, as well, for Canadian listeners. Um, Canada has all the same uh, racial gaps that we do and equally horrible history with First Nations people, Indigenous people. But a mindset that we have in a lot of, I would say, the dominantly, you know, white world, which doesn't mean we're the majority, but we base our society around white people, we center it on them, is this belief that our experience is universal. That because I experience something, you experience something. I did not have any barriers to go to a good college. And therefore, that must be true for everyone else. So anyone who claims to have barriers is whining about it and just needs to try harder and be more dedicated. That is a mindset that most of us carry around that's incredibly harmful in so many spheres of life. If we can simply acknowledge, hey, my experience, what I went through, I'm not going to assume you went through that. I'm going to assume maybe every single one of your circumstances was different from mine. Just that simple shift is incredibly powerful. Then I think it's really important to do real work and real education because I think that most white Americans were poorly educated on racial history and civil rights in school, and we are not currently educated by the media about it. And so we need to read some books, watch some films. Netflix has a great assortment up right now that they're featuring on Black Lives Matter. Uh, There have been plenty of books that have been mentioned, but How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Kendi is a great one. Uh, So you want to talk about racism by E.G.M. Aluo. That's an incredible book. They include personal stories, but also really posit ideas for how we can move forward. There is a book by a white author who I hope she'll donate all her profits from profiting off this moment to Black Lives Matter. But uh, that book is called White Fragility, Robin D'Angelo. And that is a good one too, to think about why white people have such a hard time engaging on some of these issues. I think doing some of that work, even reading one book, but I think we can all do better than that, is a good place to start, to just start to really understand this, to understand the trauma that people carry around, even if they themselves were never enslaved, uh, the fact that their ancestors were. I mean, Black Americans today for the most part, those who who have descended from enslaved people don't know their country of origin. They don't know what their heritage is. They walk around, you know, guessing and thinking about that. Like I, I know exactly where my ancestors came from. I know like the specific counties in Germany they came from. Just 
even feeling unrooted like that of not knowing where you came from. Those of us who are white and don't have that experience, we just, we don't know what that means for someone. And so trying to understand that, trying to empathize, trying to understand just because I know my heritage, just because I had a good school, that's not necessarily true for everyone. And so the opportunities that I've had aren't necessarily opportunities that have been open to everyone. I think just acknowledging that is so important. I like the fact that you brought up education and to further the point we made before, as opposed to finding your closest person of color who may or may not want to talk about these things, there is wonderful collections of books and blogs and podcasts on people who have really made it their business to talk about these things and feel passionate and want to get their message out to you. So be mindful of the fact that not everyone is ready to do that emotional labor of educating you about what they're going through. Um, yeah, I, I recently read an article uh, in Glamour that was an interview with Ijeoma, uh, and she talked about how she wants to live in a world in which we don't have to talk about this stuff. And it was something that I I'd thought about but hadn't really it hadn't crystallized in this way where she said, I'm having to spend my life essentially fighting back against racism. And this is a fight we were fighting 50 years ago, 150 years ago, 400 years ago. I mean, this goes back to the very beginnings of the country. And even before that in Europe, you know, certainly there were a lot of racial injustices. So this is not a new thing. People have been fighting forever. And what could all of the black writers, black thinkers, other thinkers of color, writers of color be contributing to the world if they weren't having to spend their time thinking and talking and writing about racism? I mean, we're missing out on a huge wealth of knowledge and creativity and cultural richness by making people keep fighting this fight. And so consider that if you're tempted to text a friend or coworker and say, hey, how are you feeling about racism right now? Or tell me what I should be doing, you're keeping them from doing other important work too, in addition to expecting them to relive trauma and to um, share with you whether they feel safe or not. And so consider that in what we're asking people to do and try to do as much of that work yourself as you can. Don't go on Facebook and say, okay, I want to learn. Tell me how. You're a smart person. You can figure it out. We all have access to Google. Google it, read books, watch films. It's all there. But let's try to take some of that weight off folks who've been doing so much of this work and fighting so much of this fight for so long and do some of this fighting for them. Is there any non-weird ways to show support for your friends and family who are people of color without putting more burden on them? I mean, are there basic, simple ways we can say, hey, we support you? Maybe the Black Square is one of them. Maybe the you know Black Lives Matter signs is enough. but. How should people go about helping those people directly in their lives without making it strange and weird? So I want to acknowledge that I can't really speak to that because I am a white woman. Uh, So I don't know what it's like to carry that burden around and to be expected to speak to this all the time. But I've tried to read a lot on this question and to think about what's an appropriate way to reach out to folks. And so what, what I've been trying to do is to send notes or send texts and to say, hey, I'm thinking of you. You don't have to respond to this, um, but please know that I'm holding space for you and I'm happy to support you in any way that I can. Please let me know what that might be. A lot of it is with friends who are bloggers and things like that and say, like, is there anything you're working on that I can help support? So it makes clear that I'm not expecting them to 
inform me. I'm not expecting them to even respond at all, which is more emotional labor on their part. And the holding space part lets them know that they won't won't be a burden to me if they ask for something. That like, hey, I'm specifically holding this space for you right now. Please let me know what I can do. Um, That's from what I've read something that that is much more effective than sending a long email and saying, hey, I feel really guilty. White people are the worst. Anything like that where we're sharing our guilt is, this is another quote out there that I love, but the idea of making them swim through our white tears in addition to fighting is really not fair to people. We don't want to center our own feelings in this and make it about how I feel so bad. We want to make it about this is the fight we need to be fighting. Yes, I can feel those things. I can feel guilty, but it's not for me to put that on others. I can feel that in private. I can write that down in private. That's something that I think we should all consider too is let's not make it about white guilt. It's been about white guilt forever. Let's make it about black lives and racial justice. Yeah, I really like that concept of the short note saying, I'm creating space for you and I'm here, but not requiring anything specifically back. Because again, Mm -hmm. we get to this point of how do we, and this is the question I asked in the beginning is how do we help without hurting? And unfortunately, sometimes our first idea of how to help is some of those things you're talking about is assaging our own guilt or making the situation more emotionally fraught for someone who's already struggling for where they are. So I think that's a, a wonderful way and certainly one I plan to use. We talk a little bit too about content creators because a lot of people who listen to this and a lot of us create some type of content, whether it be a blog or a podcast or even a tweet. I was interested in a recent blog post. You talked a little bit about the language we use and mm-hmm. we hear people say things like slave labor or, or the becoming a wage slave and how destructive that kind of language can actually be. I have to admit I always stayed away from using that word in that context, but I've used words like indentured servitude. I certainly see how easy it is to use that language without realizing the negative downstream effects. For sure. And I think that we as a community have just not really confronted this before as we perhaps should have. I think some of us have talked about it, but we've made that conversation more private. And the most common analogy I see is the likening of debt to slavery, that if you are in debt, you are a slave somehow. Uh, If we actually look at the history of slavery, that's simply not true. There's no measure in which that's true. You cannot declare bankruptcy from slavery and no longer be an enslaved person. Uh, After the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, you couldn't even be a freed slave in a northern state and and have that freedom insured. You could be forcibly returned back to your quote-unquote owner uh, because we thought People could own people. There is nothing about having credit card debt, having a mortgage, having student loan debt that is like that. That's not to say being in debt feels great. It's not to say that uh, you know having a heavy student loan burden from a bad institution is a great spot to be in, but it is nothing like slavery. And so we need to think about this. A response that I got a lot because I've for years been calling out, especially bloggers who are friends or podcasters who are friends. I've said like, hey, you know, maybe rethink how you use slavery or uh, how you use wage slave. Even people who are very progressive and very pro-human, pro-social justice. I've, I've heard for years them 
using those phrases. And so I've, I've said this to folks and they said, you know, like, I just don't see what the big deal is. And that's, again, making that mistake of assuming that your experience is universal of slavery doesn't feel like a big, huge, loaded, traumatic thing to you. So you assume it's not for others when we need to instead say, what are the words we use? How might they affect others? And okay, I'll find a better word. I mean, we have lots of words. There are all kinds of things that we can compare debt to or we can compare having to go to work. I mean, the idea of comparing having to go to work to slavery, the concept of wage slavery, is so preposterous to me. Virtually every person who's ever lived on this planet has had to work in some capacity. How is that like slavery? Surely we can do better. And we use other words too that are problematic. The use of tribe a lot in the financial independence space a lot. Uh, That has meanings both in Africa and in indigenous cultures. And having a group of friends is not having a tribe. It may not push any buttons for you and feel bad for you, but it feels bad for others. And we have to know that. doesn't mean our vocabulary instantly has to be perfect, but when we see these things pointed out to us, we can make the decision to do better. Maybe apologize if it warrants it. Um, Maybe not. Maybe just move forward and do better. But we have to keep learning. We have to keep listening. That's so important. I think the listening piece is, is really so key because I think we're so quick to say, no, 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 this is my perspective. I don't need to listen to anybody else. You know, when you first asked me to have this conversation, I said, yes, I would love to talk about this. But I also thought, I'm a white person. <laughs> it's weird to be trying to be the voice of this in some way. And so I see my role not as representing people of color or black folks, but of trying to talk to my fellow white folks and say, how can we do better? But we really need to listen to people of color. And that's not to say we expect them to do all the work. But when they say, hey, we need this thing or this means this to me, we need to listen. Yeah. And and you know, you and I have had this conversation, this idea that we as non-people of color have to work together to improve things above and beyond asking for input from people of color. I think there's a time and a place for that, especially for people who actually want to play that role. But we also have to do some of that work together as non-people of color. And that was a big reason I wanted to have this conversation with you. I think you're one of the people who's willing to have that conversation. Thank you. I I appreciate you saying that. I I think the line that is tricky to walk, but that we have to keep trying. And I think we have to expect that we're going to fail sometimes and that we're going to get back up and try again and keep going is we have to have these conversations. This has to be something that white people talk about from now on, where we are willing to cross a line that feels like it's impolite and call others out. We can do it in a gentle way, but we still need to do it. But we can't center ourselves in this. And that's, I think, the difference of it's ultimately what is the fight? The fight is for racial justice. Who is it for? Very much for Black lives, for Black folks, but also other people of color. It's not for us. We are are trying to right a wrong. We can't be the heroes of the story. And we can't be patting ourselves on the back. We've talked about that a lot. But it's, it's making sure that when we bring folks in or we ask them for input, that it's not in a way that is tokenizing anyone. Think about it. Like how much of your life do you spend speaking about the experience of being a white person? I'm guessing before this month, very little. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But we expect women to talk frequently about what it's like to be a woman. We expect disabled people to talk constantly about that. We expect people of color to talk about that experience. 
And so that is tokenizing. Tokenizing is when you say, okay, I'm going to let you, a white male, talk about whatever you want, what your interests are, what makes you distinct as a person. But you as a person with some marker of otherness, non-white maleness, you have to speak about that identity. We can't do that. We just can't. We have to make a decision to include people as people, but also recognize that people bring different perspectives, that teams are stronger, that companies are more profitable when they're more diverse, uh, and make that something long-lasting. And and also, I think, in terms of not centering ourselves, like if you bring folks together to talk about something – don't expect that you as the white person are going to lead it. Maybe you're passing the baton and saying to someone, hey, I have this idea. This is something that's cool. What do you think of it? Do you want to have this idea? doesn't always have to be like, oh, we just are trying to check boxes. That's my fear from this is that we get more diverse, but it's diverse on paper. It's not diverse in reality. Uh, so that is something we have to look out for. It'll be interesting to see how this whole discussion evolves. So we've talked about ways that we can do things better. One is certainly education. We talked about ways we can talk differently. We talked about ways we can work through this with each other. One thing we haven't talked about, but is actually a fairly easy way to support uh, Black Lives Matter as well as people of color is to buy Black products, is to Mm -hmm. consume Black people's content, is to support those causes that come from black people who are out there in the world who care about things. It's a fairly easy way to support people. Absolutely. That's something that anyone can do. We've been making a point for several years. It obviously doesn't apply right now while we're in quarantine, uh, but we've made a point for years of if a new movie comes out that is a woman-driven superhero movie or uh, like Black Panther was a great example, a black-driven superhero movie or a Crazy Rich Asians was another one of you don't see rom-coms with Asian leads very often of going to that movie on opening weekend. Show your financial support because we have a lot of systems that are still built on the belief that superhero or a movie star is a white male. And that is the only thing that someone can look like. And so we have to vote with our dollars on a lot of this stuff. And I think that's supporting Black creators at all levels. I think that's not just trying to read the anti-racism books by Black authors, but reading their fiction, reading their comic books, reading all of it. You know, there's so much wonderful contribution uh, from Black Americans to the culture of the world. And we're happy to dance to Beyonce, but then we don't want to fight the fight uh, with her. You know, and Beyonce sent a letter to the attorney general in Kentucky to try to get Breonna Taylor's killers imprisoned. I mean, she's fighting this fight every day and we're just saying like, oh, I like all the single ladies. Um, We have to do better than that. And I saw the quote earlier today. Again, I wish I could recall who said it, but it's not enough to be an ally. Allies are someone who cheers you on. Uh, What we need to be is accomplices. We need to be in the fight. And that means not just out in the protests or where we donate money, but also what we buy, uh, what companies we support. That means not only supporting Black businesses, but not supporting the businesses that underpay their Black workers or that don't hire Black workers or disabled workers. We could, again, you know, fill in any marginalized category, uh, but it's, it's really all those pieces. I think, too, specifically to content creators, something that's important to change is how we give advice because you know, I was talking with, with my husband, Mark, earlier today, and he was saying, well, you know, how actually is it different? Isn't financial advice pretty universal? Spend less than you earn. Build up an emergency fund. Contribute to your 401k up to the match. And I said, well, that sounds good, but Black folks are only half as likely as white workers to even have access to a 401k. 
Black families and individuals have been discriminated against with mortgages. They've been discriminated against with redlining for homeownership. So we currently see actually the rate of homeownership for Black families is currently lower than it was when it was legal to discriminate against them in lending. So we're seeing backwards progress and we need to stop acting like the advice we give is universal. And if you can't follow it, that you're at fault rather than that the system is Some would say broken, some would say functioning as intended, but in any case, the system is not equal and we need to acknowledge that in the advice we give. Yeah, I definitely know as a content producer that sometimes it's hard to identify barriers that you yourself have never had to leap over. And I think that's a perfect example of it. They're just things that we don't always understand because we're not living them. True, but I think that's also a choice not to read research, not to stay informed. And I think it's on us as creators, if we're going to speak up and say, hey, I know something about money, you should listen to me. It's our responsibility to make sure that we understand the full picture as much as possible. We're always going to miss something. We will always have blind spots, but it's on us to try a little harder to be better informed. So let's talk about the future a little bit. Do you think these changes, at least in the personal finance sphere, we could talk about the world too, but in the personal finance sphere, do you think these are durable changes? Do you think the world has changed? I don't think the world has changed. I'm hopeful that this attention that folks are paying will lead to some better things, but I think we have to acknowledge that, historically speaking, change is slow and people tend to forget about it quickly. That could look very different in a year if we commit to this, if we say we are going to take up this cause collectively as a personal finance community, we are going to acknowledge the gaps better. Uh, We're going to talk about the lack of opportunities that some folks face. We're going to work ourselves to create more of those opportunities by paying Black creators and other creators of color what they're worth. Um, There are things we can do, but they are going to require some changes. And so I think where this goes is wholly reliant on that. If we just say, hey, okay, I gave some money, I marched a little, I posted some stuff, and now I'm going to go back to business as usual, I don't think we're going to see lasting change. But if we make up our mind to do better, to acknowledge that money is political, to acknowledge that systems are in place that impact this stuff. You know, like one of the arguments I frequently hear is, well, you know, the, the black wealth gap is explained by poor education. You know, they just like, black folks come out of school worse educated, Well, that's a choice. We have made that choice as a society. We have decided to underfund predominantly Black and Latino schools, and particularly Indigenous schools. Uh, We have made the choice not to better invest in those schools and to help everyone get up to the same level. And so to act like that's somehow a person's fault for going to that school is so deeply unhelpful. But if we can actually look in a more clear-eyed way at this stuff and be less afraid of failing, you know, recognize, okay, I'm going to get some stuff wrong. I'm going to get corrected along the way. That is how it's going to go. And we're all going to learn together. I think we could see some change, but we can't sugarcoat it. This is not going to be the flood. You know, we're fighting a lot of the same fights now that civil rights protesters were fighting 50 years ago in the sixties. So this is a long-term thing. And we've, we've, if we want it to be different, we have to really commit. It's incredibly difficult to see the reports from the 50s and the 60s and the riots and all the recommendations still hold true today because a lot of people never followed them. This is a time where it feels good and popular to stand up and decry injustice in the world. But certainly if we want things to get better, 
many of us are going to have to be willing to take this stance in six months or 12 months or two years when it is not as popular. And frankly, when it might be a little more difficult. And I think that's one of those hard pills to swallow is it feels good right now, but how do we start and continue to push change? I think a helpful frame to use in thinking about this is the more you can say now, the more you normalize others continuing to speak in the future so that this isn't something where you tweet about your feelings on racial justice and people go, yeah, we did that. That was so last year. We have to say as much as we can at this moment, but then we have to just keep saying it. So if Black Lives Matter is a hashtag you're using right now, make sure you're using it next week. You know, this is something maybe you schedule it in your content schedule. If you're not a content creator, you're, you're a person who's interested in money and living in the world, um, that, that you're making a point when you see a Black friend or colleague post something that you're going to give that a signal boost. You're going to help others find that, their business. You know, this can take many forms. It doesn't all have to feel like a conversation about abolishing the police. It's simply an ongoing commitment where the more we talk now, easier it'll be down the road, but then we're still going to have to talk about it even if it feels like others aren't talking about it. Because if we let this go silent, nothing will change. And that would be truly the worst outcome. My children's violin teacher has a saying about practice. Instead of saying practice makes perfect, she says practice makes permanent. Hmm. And in this case, I think your words really ring true, is that we have to get into the habit of speaking up about these things and have that be part of our everyday process, not in a way that we take it for granted, but in a way that it is first nature for us to call out injustice and act upon it. Tanya Hester, it has been wonderful having you on. She is an author and a blogger. Her award-winning book is Work Optional, Retire Early, The Non-Penny-Pinching Way. Thank you for coming on and talking about these very important things. Thank you for taking up the topic. You can tell I'm passionate about it, but it's so important for all of us. I definitely agree. feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.